um, a section from the Sutta Napata, which is a uh, some of the oldest texts. In fact, I'm gonna I'm gonna read from a portion of it called the Atakavaga, which is considered by some scholars to be the oldest layers of the uh, of the Pali Canon. Um, it's referred to uh, specifically in other suttas in the in the set of scriptures. And I'm I'm a particular fan of it. it it's this is a small book, and people don't use it a lot because this small book is forty five dollars. Tan Jeff has translated. You can find a translation on the web at Access to Insight um, that is available for free. But I particularly like it because it includes some um, some texts that that are incredibly intimate portraits of, of the Buddha, or snapshots of the Buddha and his thinking. This is, um, this is the Buddha speaking. This is from a time, these texts are from a time before there was a Sangha. They're very early in his teaching, before there were monks following him around. Um, he says, just look at how people quarrel and fight. Let me tell you now of the kind of dismay and terror that I have felt, seeing people struggling like fish, writhing in shallow water with enmity against one another. I became afraid. At one time, I had wanted to find some place where I could take shelter, but I never saw any such place. There's nothing in this world that is solid at base and not a part of it that's changeless. I had seen them all trapped in mutual conflict, and that, I, that is why I had felt so repelled. But then I noticed something buried deep in their hearts. It was, I could just make it out, a barb. It's a barb that makes its victims run all over the place. But once it's been pulled out, all that running is finished, and so is the exhaustion that comes from it. That barb, it's interesting, it's a barb in the heart, it's not a barb in the mind. It's, uh, we were talking last week about tanha, and I think in some ways this is what he's, he's pointing at. It's this, these built-in compulsions, the ongoing need to have our experience pleasant, and to continue on uh, more and more. Um, and he's focusing on the, on the um, tendency of, these, of this barb and this tendency to, to quarrel and fight f for uh, producing well, quarrels and conflicts and, and violence. It's not the only ground for violence. People fight over food and resources, but people fight over views, over ideas. And the, and the Buddha is, is pretty clear that um, fighting over views is not what he's about. This is, this is uh, the Buddha says, monks, I do not dispute with the world. Rather, the world disputes with me. A proponent of the Dharma does not dispute with anyone in the world. You got any disputes? <laughs> yeah, I, oh, what is he talking about? You know, is that just something that, you know, the Buddha and his... You know, I've seen on its lotus throne, off in the two seat of heavens, maybe, but down here. It's another place in the canon. His cousin, Dandapani, who is not a fan. The Buddha, the Buddha came from sort of a dysfunctional family. Um, his cousin tried to kill him by pushing a boulder on him, 
and I, I gather it, it's it. <laughs> uh, yeah. um, it left a sliver in his in, uh, of stone in his foot that was very painful. But he but Don Dupani was also a a a, uh, a cousin, and he was not a fan. And um, there's this story in the in the Majjhima in the Honeyball Sutta where Don Dupani comes across the Buddha sitting out there in the forest in the jungle and and he sort of got this sneering out. He says, What is what does the holy man teach? And the Buddha says, Friend, I assert and proclaim a teaching in such a way that one does not quarrel with anyone in the world, with its gods, its Maras and its Brahmans Brahmas. In this generation, with its recluses and Brahmins, its princes and its people, <coughs> in such a way that perceptions no more underlie that Brahmin who abides detached from sensual pleasures. He doesn't dis dispute <coughs> with anyone in the world. How do you do that? Is that the path we're on? Or is that just somebody else's path? And we're just going to sit and meditate. This is, this is... <laughs> and then, of course, we open our eyes. Achan Junian, who some of you may know, who shows up here sometimes in the, in the summer, a Thai monk, he, has a, he says he has a, a woman in his monastery in, in Thailand who's particularly adept at the, the jhanas attainments, at absorption. He says the problem is that when, she's, when she opens her eyes, she's cranky. <laughs> it's more pleasant with the eyes closed. This is the Buddha. He says, a, a monk whose mind is liberated sides with none and disputes with none. He employs the speech currently used in the world without clinging, without adhering to it or clinging to it. This is not just one little passage. He's pretty clear. So if the Buddha's, if, you know, we're looking here for some guidance, then that and the trick is to figure out what is he talking about. Clinging to views you know, results in quarrels. Those who have embraced a certain theory and argue over it, maintaining that that alone is the truth, you may talk with such people, but here, speaking about himself, there is no opponent to battle with you. Uh, the, the trick, of course, is to figure out what he's... <laughs> How do you do that? What does it mean to cling to a view? When you, when you believe a particular idea, a view, in, the, in, these, in these contexts really means an idea, an understanding, a story, a narrative. It's, it's the... Uh, the map that we use to locate ourselves in, in our life and the world. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, this clinging, the depending on it, happens because it provides some security some stability. We didn't, if we didn't have our, our understandings of what's going on, we, we do like stability and security, even though the world is not offering it, so we sort of make it up. <laughs> and uh, you know, and we, we hold on tight. We don't, we don't want, without views, our experience would be uncertain. What's, you know, without our ideas about what's outside this room, you know, it would be sort of like, do you ever see 
was it Beetlejuice? Where he opens the door and it's some fantasy world and he goes back, don't want to see it. Now, without our understanding, what have we got? A on-rushing stream of constantly changing experience. And so we, wow, since we first started conceptualizing, we've been building an understanding, a map of what's going on. And so the map that we've got is very deep in our, in our, own, uh, in our own minds. And we, we, we hold to those ideas and we resist suggestions that they're not true. You know, I think of, I, I, I often think of how, you know, the, uh, the Inquisition put away uh, Galileo and Giordano Bruno for thinking that the uh, earth went around the sun. And we're pretty righteous about that right now, you know. We know better. But we think that the speed of light is a constant, don't we? We do. I mean, it's, although as, as Lee Brasington, a friend of mine, says, you know, there's nothing that's a constant. <laughs> and so it's just an assumption. I mean, it very well could be that in another increment of time, physicists and philosophers have worked it out so that they understand time as part of some, or light as part of some other system and it's a dependent phenomenon as well. But we like our constants. You know, we like our, our, and we project all over the world. We project all over everything, our own wishes. Complaints, for example. You know, anybody got any complaints? <laughs> of any kind? Justified? And just totally irrational <laughs> ones, ones that we just indulge in because we can. Yeah. Really, the world is the way it is, and our dispute with it comes from us. Byron Katie likes to say, if you argue with the way things are, you'll lose, but only 100% of the time. <laughs> And complaints are a great marker for our own dissatisfaction. Often it's difficult, you know, we talk about, uh, about dukkha a lot in this, in this tradition, and how do we even recognize it? Complaints are a great place to look, any complaint you've got. We were talking last week about the way the mind works with like a moth and a, and a flame. There's an object of attention, and then there's our relationship to it. The moth and, and us, when we're in the thrall of desire, for example, we just, just seize the flame. Everything else is dark, just what we want. We don't even see the consequences we don't think of. You just want that Lexus or whatever. We don't even think of the insurance and we don't think of the, we just want the, I guess they don't have Corinthian leather seats anymore. They used to. <laughs> when we're talking about views and opinions, those things become like the flame. We can regard them as like the flame. We just see a particular thought, a particular idea, and some thoughts are pleasant and some thoughts are not. Some, some thoughts cause stress. We worry about whether they're true or false. The Buddha was more concerned, I think, with whether or not the particular view resulted in more suffering or not. You know, we have a, uh, 
a tradition of looking to precepts for, to, for, to guide our behavior. And one of them is about speech, and it's to not speak falsely, isn't it? Not that, but there are times when speaking falsely is appropriate, and even compassionate. You know? We can all think of situations when, when you take a, a hard line, never speak falsely, then you've got to struggle with, well, what do you do when? <clears throat> Often the, the disputes that show up are, the, sub the subject matter is not so important, it's like the flame is not so important, but our compulsion in regard to it, our, our, the nature of our relationship, our clinging to it, our dependence on it uh, often makes the discussion more about who's right rather than you know whatever the, whatever the content is people get you know they if if they if they're the, the views the understandings on which they base their on which their security and, and consistency and comfort are based are threatened well, then you got to slug it out. There's, you know, the old line about might makes right used to be believed that the victor in a, in a uh, contest would be the one that God favored, and therefore that was the right one. So that's how you had the champions. The knights would be the champion of, it's my understanding anyway. It's an old understanding, <laughs> but there it is. Um, that, you know, to defend the honor of the lady, you would go out and, of course, if you were vanquished, it meant the lady's honor was not defended. You know. Might makes right, and, of course, you know, we know that to the victors goes the history. <laughs> you know, the accounts. Um, so it's, you know, it's my rightness, my wrongness, and the standards that we use. So we may prefer to use some empirical standards, some personal validation and observation to, to uh, um, validate our stories about the way things are. And other people may depend on revealed truth. Completely different set of standards. Hmm. What gives rise to this stuff? I think that, you know, last week we were talking about tanha and the, and the four truths in the, in the context of evolutionary biology, evolutionary necessity. I think that with this incredible processing power that we've got, that we've evolved, that enables us to solve problems and navigate this life more efficiently for survival purposes. We represent the world, our experience, in a huge, in a cons complex conceptual map. And, and like a GPS, I think I mentioned the GPS last week, like a GPS, we have the map, and the map makes sense for us only if you got the little blue dot there. Otherwise, you just got a map. But how do you get to some place? You have to know where you are. You locate yourself. And so the self becomes a, an evolutionary tool to help the organism survive, to make it more efficient at surviving. We think in terms of cause and effect. You hear people say, everything happens for a reason. As if the, there's, that's something that's been proven. You know, as opposed to things just happening. I mean, I, you know, this life just happened to me. I don't know about you. Anybody involved in the planning of it? Was there... Now we can come up with reasons, but, you know. Um, and we, we use that kind of thinking to make ourselves more efficient survivors, to, to, um, to improve our, our chance, bhavatanha, to become in the future. 
and to make things pleasant for ourselves. Somebody asked last week about um, why, why would we want more than we need? Because we're built to want more and more and more and to live longer and longer. We want to live longer. We want more life. How much life do we need? We want more. <laughs> you know? it's, it's those, those of our ancestors who had those kinds of inclinations were more likely to survive and pass on their, their genes. And of course, it's not just the five, six thousand generations of humans. It's all of the evolutionary history. Every cell in our body wants to survive and reproduce. <clears throat> and so our, our brain makes snapshots, conceptualizes, and makes this map. Basic perception. Buddha described the distortions of perception that occur that um, lead us to suffering. And they're the obvious ones. We perceive permanence or stability in things that are inherently impermanent and unstable. There's nothing, well, that's what the Buddha said, there's nothing stable anywhere. <clears throat> Some things may appear more stable than others because, I mean, in my dog's life, I've always been around. So he may think I'm stable. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> so the things that change more slowly than our lives, but there's a lot that changes faster, we can see even at the subatomic level. Matter flashes into existence and disappears. All things are in process. All things in motion. <clears throat> you think that this is a piece of paper. It's just a snapshot of these molecules at this moment. It wasn't long ago when these were not a piece of paper, and they won't be a piece of paper for long. <clears throat> in geological time, that's for sure. Everything is changing, everything is embedded in everything to the point where there really aren't any things anywhere. There's just unfolding process. To think that some things are stable when other things are not, a basic distortion of perception, the Buddha says. A distortion of view. To see things that are incapable of being satisfying as being satisfying. That's a distortion. There's nothing that's capable of providing any kind of lasting satisfaction. Maybe some relief. I was driving <coughs> this morning and the car in front of me was going too slow for me. Ever had that happen? And I just felt it in my body, I wanted to go faster. It's, you know, I look around and it, it's not going that much slower, but the lane to the left is going faster. And I managed to get some relief from that tension by accelerating into the left lane, by acting out on it, you know? Pulling around the car, and no longer was feeling hung up by that driver. But, thinking that, that there is a possibility for, well, the first, the first noble truth. If satisfaction is an interest to you, you're going to be dissatisfied. <laughs> if it's not a problem, well, I bow to you. Um, and and anatta, the perception that things have essences, something, an essence, just 
that they are things, you know, that there's some thing about my dog that makes him a dog. And we really believe, in essence, it's a platonic notion. Plato talked about the world of forms that's real. What's permanent, we think, is more real than what's <coughs> constantly changing. It's just sort of an assumption that we make. Buddha said, because everything is changing, there isn't anything with an essence anywhere. And the last, the last of the distortions of perception, he said, was seeing beauty in what is inherently not beautiful. That's an interesting one. And it, it points at a particular kind, I think I, talk, I may have talked about this last, I find myself saying the same things over and over again. Sugar is not sweet. We think of sugar as being sweet, but it's just sitting there, it's just a chemical sitting there. It's only sweet when we taste it. Sweetness has to do with our relation, our, our encounter with sugar the sound of a tree falling in the forest. Sound occurs in our neurology. Other things are happening out there, vibrations of molecules in the air, but sound. Beauty is, it's a cliche, is in the eye of the beholder. To see beauty in what is inherently just itself. The Buddha says, the pretty, the, um, a person's sensual pleasure is lustful intention. It's our wanting them that makes them pretty, that makes them, and that want them because they're pleasant, pleasant to experience. The pretty things remain just as they are in the world, and the wise remove the desire for them. He would often suggest looking at some of those things like you would look at a royal chariot. Beautiful, but sort of like a museum piece, not something to own or possess. Because the, the pretty stuff, the pleasant stuff, we want to hold on to and keep it with us so that it'll be pleasant all the time. We like that idea of permanent pleasantness, don't we? It's, Sort of the idea of, I'll get enlightened, then everything will be fine. Remember, the Buddha got enlightened and his cousin tried to kill him and mashed up his foot and he, you know, he wound up with, he had a bad back, bad enough that he often had to uh, just lie there and let, you know, have Ananda go and do the Dharma talks. So we've got this, this, perception of the world that's kind of distorted because we see thing, things um, that can provide satisfaction for us. And then there's, then there's the viewpoint, our self, this, this blue dot on the, uh, on the GPS, the, the self, so that we make sense of what's going on and what we're doing. And the, the dot arises at the same time as the object. The self arises, it's the same. The flame and the moth, they're related. You know, the Buddha says that consciousness is the result of a duality of the object and the sense organ. It's a dependently arisen phenomenon, dependent on conditions. The self arises in relation to an object of perception, and we figure out what's our, what, what is our relationship to it? What's at stake here? Do I care? And we tell stories about, about things. Stories are useful. You know, the neuroscience people seem to think that the construction of stories do, do a number of different things for us. One of the things they do is they filter out the stuff that's not important because there's just so much stuff, so much 
data input, and the mind is filtering it out you know, most of the time. But you know, you, you're at a party and there's a murmur of conversation and you're talking with somebody. The mind is registering everything. If somebody says your name across the room, you, you, all of a sudden, you hear it. It's because that data is coming in right now. You're not paying attention to the sensations on the soles of your feet. You just check them out, and they're there, right? <laughs> there are there is feeling down there. That data is coming in all the time. We're just not attending to it. The stories help keep us focused. They provide focus, like the flame. And then we have a relationship to it. And that relationship we feel physically. Some stories make us cringe. Some stories make us really sad. You know, we have reactions to stories, just to thoughts and views. Our understanding. And of course, when we encounter when we encounter a view that conflicts, I, I had a, a run-in with a a checker at a supermarket some years ago, and I, you know, I was going through a, a time when I was reacting to the checkers always saying, "How are you doing?" When you know it's just a routine thing, and I, it irked me for a while. So I was trying to come up with a response. Sylvia's response was really good. One, she said, you know, it's, "Couldn't be better." Because if I could, I would. <laughs> um, That's one day I decided, uh, I, I tried out, nowadays I just say, so far so good. And I feel fairly comfortable with that, and they leave me alone. But this day I said, well, I tried out, things seem to be looking up. And this young lady said, uh, oh, good. Yeah, good. You're, you're not one of these end-of-the-world types. I said, no, 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 no. The universe has been around for 13 billion years. We got a few more. She said, well, I don't think it's been around for 13 billion years. I'm in a university town, you know? I thought, well, maybe she's a holdover 18 billion year kind of person. <laughs> yeah, no, she thought it was 6,000. And... 6,000. Well, I, I didn't do very well. <laughs> she told me it was 6,000 because, she said, all of that radiocarbon dating stuff isn't as accurate as they say. I don't need to go into it. It was, it was, it was but basically, what, what is, yeah, what is, is this a ground for dispute? Yeah. Um, but there was someone in line behind me, so I was lucky. <laughs> I, had, I had to move on. Whatever provides the security and stability, the tendency to cling to views the Buddha described as one of the one of four um, asavas, taints, defilements. There are four of them, and they're very deep their potential, the potential to want pleasant experience, kamasava. We want our experience pleasant. We do, ongoingly. More pleasant, whatever it is. We want, right? I mean, we never cease wanting it to be pleasant. We don't, we, we also want to survive. Pleasant experience tends to support survival better. If we didn't care whether our body was in pain or not, it could become destroyed and we wouldn't notice or care or take care of it. So it's an evolutionary advantage to like pleasant experience. It may not bring us peace of mind because our experience isn't pleasant. The present moment is not always pleasant. Ever notice? Sit down to meditate. Be with the present moment, oh my gosh, what's wrong here? 
the um, avijasava ignorance as a tendency of mind. And it's not a tendency to not, it's not not knowing something. It's intentionally looking away, not wanting to know. Not wanting to know how impermanent, how risky, how fragile our life is. And we just don't want to know. Um, and of course, the tendency to cling to our ideas, to the maps we have made and constructed about what's going on and how we work and who we are, the way we make sense of things so that extraneous data is filtered out, we can keep a focus, we got some stability. I mean, really, if there was, if we didn't think this was a room and we're on a floor and chairs and, I mean, what's going on in, in our minds, total onrushing change. Whatever you were thinking of when you walked in the door, can you even remember what that is? What was going on? Maybe. But it's just constantly changing. So we, we try to provide a model that gives us some stability. <coughs> what some regard as the highest view others consider to be worthless. All claim to be experts, so which one of them is right? We all claim to be, we all think we're experts. That tendency to cling to views to depend on our understanding, you know, it's, pretty, it's, it's pretty powerful, it's pretty embedded. Um, and we don't notice our relationship to these views. The purpose of mindfulness, or the function of mindfulness practice, is to take in, if you were the moth, both the flame and your compulsion to fly into it. Now, I, I, um, sometimes all we can do is, is try to get a glimpse. I, I, I think I've talked about how I bought an Apple Newton some years ago. I mean, it was seven or eight hundred dollars. 20 years ago, and I remember walking across the floor of the Bosconi Center, heading towards the kiosk where they were selling these things, thinking, I can't believe this, I'm about to, uh, this is what desire is like, I just want this thing. It's, you know, just to be mindful of the relationship to our thinking. Some thoughts can hardly abide. I had a practice some years ago where I would listen to uh, nasty talk radio you know, um, in an effort to see if I could develop some equanimity. It was a particular practice. You can try it. I, what I did was... Now, Sylvia liked it. She, she thought it was... No, she has, yeah. Well, I would, I would get off work and I'd turn the radio on and, and it was a punch on and off radio and, and whenever I got reactive, as soon as I got reactive, I had to turn it off. And, and I, I spent several months trying to get to the freeway with entrance <laughs> with the radio still on. You know. Just because the thoughts, just some of the ideas, you know, um, and some people can't, you know, where's the freedom if you can't listen to that stuff without being reactive? How free are we? I mean, really, this practice is about freedom. Freedom from the compulsion to act out on, or even to suppress. I could be driving behind this person saying, let go, let go, let go. That's just aversion, you know, suppress this feeling. What I did was I acted out on it. <laughs> but is there, is there a way to be free from it? To abandon the clinging? The Buddha uses the word ban abandon a lot. 
and we've got this clinging and we've got the view. We've got the view, we've got the flame and our relationship to it. And the question is um, not how do we live without opinions or views, because they're going to show up. It's part of the hardware is to generate those things. I think, this is just my, my take. It's part of the hardware to generate maps and concepts and but how is it is it possible <clears throat> to not cling to these things to not to not to not cling to to notice and just not fall for the bait of stability and security and how does one not dispute how does one do that a couple of things that have worked or been helpful for me that I'll share. First one is to um, not go beyond, not, to recognize the difference between what I know and what I've heard about. You know, Obama's poll numbers have gone up. Is that true? Am I making a metaphysical claim? Well, it said so on the Huffington Post, so you know it's true. <clears throat> this was a major, a major issue for the Buddha. You know, being able to recognize for yourself. When the Kalamas asked him, um, you know, the Kalamas, everybody knows the Kalama Sutta, he shows up in town and the Kalamas say, ah, oh, you know, this guy was here last week and said, uh, such and such, and he said everybody else was crazy. And we got the, this uh, grove booked for next week, and this guy's coming, and I know he's going to say the same thing, so why should we believe you? And, and the Buddha said, of course you're uncertain. Of course you're in doubt. When there are reasons for doubt, uncertainty is born. So in this case, Kalamas, don't go by reports by legends, by traditions. Don't go by scripture. Don't go by logical conjecture. By inference, by analogies. Don't go by agreement through pondering views, by probability, or by the thought, this is the teacher. Doesn't leave much. <laughs> But, he's, but when you know for yourself that a particular action is intended for the benefit of yourself and others, go forward with it. And when you know for yourself that that action is not, then restrain the action. Gave the same advice to Rahula, his son. Contemplated action in prospect, in the midst, and after, and abandon those actions that are not for the benefit. You know, and for the benefit, really, is we can, be, we can get lost in the outcome. But we're really focused on the intention. The doctors who, who performed the tonsillectomy on that poor girl in Oakland <coughs> months ago, their intention was not to, to damage her. And they may feel bad, but probably not remorse for having undertaken the surgery. You know, you do your best. What else can you do? The Buddha had the same thing to say about, when asked about karma. Mr. Gautama, there are some wanderers and priests who voice the opinion and hold the view that whatever a person experiences, pleasant or unpleasant, is caused by what was done in the past. What do you say about this? The Buddha says, some experiences are caused by bile, some by phlegm, some by wind. So you can tell the digestive state of life 2,500 years ago. Some by all three. Some experiences are caused by the change of seasons, some by poor care, some by sudden assault, and some are the fruit of one's actions. 
you can know for yourself how such experiences occur. Those who believe that all experiences are caused by what was done in the past surpass what they can know for themselves. Therefore, I say that those wanderers are mistaken. The standard is what you can is is what you know for yourself. This is the Sava Sutta. He says, "I'll tell you about everything." What is the all? Simply the eye and forms, the ear and sounds, nose and aromas, tongue and flavors, body and tactile sensations, the mind and thought. Anybody got anything else going? He says, this monks is called everything. Anyone who would say, repudiating this, I will describe something else, if questioned on what exactly might be the grounds for the statement, would be unable to explain and would be put to grief. Why? Because it's beyond their experience, beyond what they can know for themselves. So recognizing that is, I find, very helpful. Just recognizing the source. When you make, and then when you make a metaphysical claim about the way metaphysical, how are things? What are things like? When you make a claim, you know, it would be better if everybody listened to everybody else. Or the earth is 7,000 years old or 13 billion years old, or the speed of light is a constant. If you preface, I find for myself, if I preface those kinds of statements, any kind of claim like that with a I think, or my understanding is, just to relativize it some, um, then I wind up saying, I, I think this, I believe that. Where's the contention? That poor cashier can believe what she wants and she can maintain what she wants? Am I offended by the view? Do I need to be? Is it a threat? Maybe, Maybe her view isn't a threat. I don't know. This is the Buddha again. The noble one who wanders in the world liberated from views. I I notice the way that's phrased. It doesn't mean without views or without an understanding. Just free from them. Liberated. Not, not, um, Not clinging to them. The noble one who wanders in the world liberated from views does not grasp them and enter into arguments. As the thorny lotus rises on its stalk, unsoiled by mud and water, so the sage, speaker of peace and free from desire, is unsoiled by the world. There are no ties to him who is free from ideas. Not without ideas. In fact, he's expressing ideas. It's an idea. An idea That word is an idea. There are no ties to him who are free from ideas. There are no delusions to him who is delivered by wisdom. That's interesting. Dogen, the the Japanese Zen uh, founder of the uh, Soto tradition said, Enlightenment is to be enlightened is to be enlightened about delusion, and to be deluded is to be deluded about enlightenment. (laughs) There are no delusions to him who is delivered by wisdom. I also like the notion of being delivered by wisdom. There's a sense in in uh, some Dharma scenes that you're going to be delivered by your meditation practice. But it's the insight that the meditation provides. It's the wisdom that comes from it. It's not necessarily the meditation itself. Then he says, those who grasp ideas and views wander about annoying others. (laughs) 
So the idea that the, that the Buddha Dharma is a teaching that does not contend is a very bright marker for me. When you look for your own, look to your own um, complaints, contentions, disputes, there's a real clear signal of something to look at, to examine more closely, so that we can attain some freedom from the views and understandings that guide us through our lives. We use them. The Buddha says, it's actually, I'll never find it. He says, I don't say you, you'll find liberation through views, but you won't find them without them either. You need them to point in your direction. I do not say one attains purification by view, tradition, knowledge, virtue, or ritual, nor is it attained without them. It's only taking these factors as the means and not grasping them as ends in themselves that one so attains and consequently does not crave for rebecoming. So learning how to hold our understanding in a way that does not contend with anyone is a model that the more, the more we can, I find the more that I can do that, the less, uh, the less unpleasantness. Dukkha is unpleasant. We don't like it. But you know, if you have aversion to dukkha, just adding another layer of dukkha on top. I don't like the not liking. Oh yeah, well I don't like the not liking the not liking. Oh yeah, well. <laughs> so any opinions? <laughs> any thoughts? Please. Oh, you were just stretching, or were you? No, no, no. I, I did. Oh, okay. Um, going back to the Kalamas. Uh huh. Um, and the Buddha saying that what you know in yourself to be wholesome and to not harm other people. Yeah. Has, it's your intention. It's right, your intention. Intention. Um, so it's it's comforting and, and optimistic to feel that each individual has within him or herself that capability to make those kind of judgments. Yeah. But then I think of another situation where someone with their views mm-hmm. think that getting rid of um, Obamacare is wholesome and wonderful and good, and they go ahead. So, so in the absence of people who are free of of delusion and free of ignorance, we're all going to be running around acting on things that we may in the moment judge to be wholesome and creating havoc. Well, the idea here, I think, from the Buddhist standpoint, is to free yourself from suffering. And it's sort of like free yourself first and then put the mask on the young person next to you. (laughs) You know? It's sort of like on the, on the plane. Yeah, there are sociopaths who don't care. They, do, they don't. They're without uh, a conscience. People don't have that. There are people who don't have that reactivity. And it's a significant number. How do we live in, that wor- in the world with them? Well, the issue is how do we live with ourselves, without dukkha. We, we, can, we can act without dukkha. When we act out of compassion for the suffering of ourselves and others, self-compassion is huge. It's really important. We often don't think of ourselves as worthy. But we can act to defend something like, or to work on behalf of something like Obamacare, does not need to be out of anger or out of greed. You know, that blue dot, there are certain kinds of of, uh, motivations that are inspired by that. Greed, ill will, aversion, cruelty, (coughs) things that help us get our way. 
And we, we don't need to be constrained by them. It's something we have to practice and learn how to do. Um, we don't have to, to dodge the world. In fact, we want to engage the world fully. Not engaging is, is, is a form of, is a reflection of aversion, withdrawing, stepping back, cutting off. And yet we're totally engaged, we're totally immersed in this life. So how do we, what do we look to in our own experience to try to take all the unpleasantness that we add to the mix off the table? If we can take that off the table, all of a sudden everything else become, everything becomes better because we just removed all the stuff that we add that makes things worse for ourselves and others. So it's possible to address Obamacare entirely as a political tool to bludgeon opponents with, or we can look at it as a tool for providing uh, some health care to people. And there's, I don't think the Buddha is saying not to be caring for others at all. I'm not sure whether that helps with your... It, it does. I guess I was most concerned about, about an individual's ability to judge what is uh, wholesome and not... For us, we have to do that ourselves. Yeah. Really, it's about your suffering. It's, the in, it's, it's, your, it's your freedom. And... You know, you have to take care of take care of your freedom, and then you can show other people how to do it. <laughs> yeah. I think the the problem is that we may not recognize the power of rationalization. No. Oh. Um, and <laughs> so that we could rationalize that really the best way to help the poor is trickle down, uh, and really believe that. Um, sure. And and. Uh, and so, if we, and, and I, I believe the mind can rationalize anything, including the Lexus. Oh, it certainly, <laughs> it certainly is, is very tricky. It, it, yeah. But, uh, so, so how to recognize when you're rationalizing yourself in a position mm. that's really not uh, skillful, and when you are um, yeah. homing in on what is truly good. Well, what's good and what's bad are opinions and views, you know? Everyone thinks their opinion is right and will, will engage in very uh, skillful rationalization to demonstrate the rightness of our position. It's that rightness that we defend. It's that rightness that we fight for. It's the rightness that leads us to conflict. So... The Buddha was not particularly interested in public policy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he was interested in, in, in our, our personal f freedom. Yeah. One of the things, the challenges that I've been working on is that um, I found in my travels that people frequently want to discuss things with you because they want to argue, mm -hmm. because they want to bend and not because they want an exchange of ideas or they even are concerned about what your ideas are mm -hmm. or your viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And so my brother taught me a great phrase and when people ask him what he thinks, he says, I think a 300 pound dog is a really big dog. <laughs> often, uh -huh. often, people, often people want to be listened to, they want to be heard, and if they're heard, um, the next thing is they want to be right, uh, want you to validate that they're right. You know, if you're making things up, for example, you need everybody to agree with you. If you say God is blue, you got the guys who are saying God is red, you know, you can't let them go on. <laughs> you know, uh, when you're making it up, you can make it up any, any way you want. Did you, did you, yeah. I'm curious about the statement that about beauty, uh -huh. beauty and things which are inherently not beautiful, uh -huh. and that that's a whatever it is. Right. We're, <laughs> we're, so 
it's a distortion of perception. When you the example of the royal chariot and saying, well, that's really beautiful, mm -hmm. what if you don't want it? And if you're, I mean, if you can just look at the trees or the flowers it, or the, the royal chariot, the or whatever. but they are just what they are. When, we, the, when they are pleasant for us, yeah. we want them. We want more of them. What if we think just enjoy them without wanting more? The enjoyment is, we, we don't enjoy it when it's unpleasant. So the enjoyment is something that happens with pleasant experience. It's not the experience itself that's pleasant. It's not whatever's, it's our relationship to it. So an idea, for example, that's pleasant for us, Obamacare, might be anathema to someone else. It's not the idea. It's not, um, it's not the particular... Uh, some people may look at lilies and say, oh, can't stand them, because they've got some association maybe with a funeral that they were at when they, and they don't... So it's unpleasant. It's not the lilies that are unpleasant, it's the reaction. So, so, is there so a the Buddha's... in saying things as beautiful? He's, if you're not... There is a there is a there is a tendency to want more, to want to hold what's pleasant, what's stable, what's secure, and what the Buddha is saying is that it's not the sugar that's sweet, it's our relationship to it, it's not those smears on that canvas that are pretty, are but it can evoke in us emotion that is pleasant or maybe even not, sometimes unpleasant emotion can be instructive and we go, ah, yes, not going there. In fact, telling stories, you're just saying, telling stories, the neuroscience people say, one of the things about telling stories and fiction that makes them useful is it gives us a chance to try things out in our imagination without having to do them. So it tends to make us more efficient. Now, some stories are pleasant, some not. Yeah. Yeah, so, so you sort of have to, sometimes I think you have to decide, do you want your life to be, you know, pretty dull, with no real opinions, not enjoying <laughs> beauty, or do you want to just say, well, the hell with it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to want to go to that art show, I want to travel here, I want to do this, and yeah, sometimes there's some suffering, but it's okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, because I mean, it really does. I mean, does anyone else think, you know, I do think about that sometimes. But, sure. Yeah. The question is whether we do have a choice. Right. And are those the only two choices? Yeah. It's, we, may, we may not have a choice. It, it may be easy to think things are, are okay with just a little summer, suffering just before the diagnosis. We may not have a choice, yeah. But if, if you approach the experience with equanimity, and uh -huh. you're okay with it being this or being that, Absolutely. that the solution you Equanimity is... You can, you can enjoy it. Well, that's not, that's not what you were, you were positing, as I understood you were positing, going with the flow, which is what gets us in trouble. Well, this is more back to the Mars, the Mars thing about wanting to enjoy beauty. I can enjoy that beautiful rose, and I know that... The, the, the Buddha never would say not to enjoy a beautiful rose. Well, you would say... <laughs> to me, it's beautiful. Uh, that's no problem with that. You're saying, to, to me, that rose is beautiful. And I know it's impermanent, and I know... But, but you're not claiming that the rose, in and of itself, metaphysically, beauty inheres in it. Okay, but, got it, though, yeah. Okay. That it's that it's an essential quality of the rose that it's beautiful. It yes, I think, and there's no contention there. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it, for me in my experience, it's a balancing of how comfortable am I with how attached I am to the experience. Like I was in, um, I was someplace, and. Um, and I was very attached to how that experience was going to be because I had preconceptions about that experience based on everything I heard and all these wonderful things. And I was so attached to it that I ruined the experience. And, and that happened. I, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, quarrels and disputes 
They're, they're a big signal for us. Pay attention. What was the quote by your, was it Aunt Kate? By Byron Katie? Yeah. Katie? No, no, no. Oh, was it Byron Katie? Byron well, Katie? Was, <laughs> no, Byron, was that the one about you can argue with the way things are? <laughs> if you argue with the way things are, you'll lose? Yes. But only 100% of the time. That's Byron Katie. Yeah. Byron Katie is wonderful. Check her out. So thank you, guys. I will see you next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.